Okay, we'll pick up when we were so rudely interrupted. Anyhow, I know I can turn my phone off. Long story there. I just, again, long story. Anyhow, um, but anyhow, Bill Cooper, he has determined that the Sumerian for the 36,000, 28,000 year ages, actually, that is a mistranslation and it brings it down seven, eight hundred years. And so it, it accords much closer to the biblical record. But then another fascinating thing occurs on the Sumerian king list. It says, then the flood swept over. So here you have something seemingly to confirm Genesis so radically that you had this time period where people lived very long time periods. Whether in fact the word for thousands is a mistranslation or it was just one of these pagan exaggerations that happened. And then the flood swept over, and it mentions the flood throughout the Sumerian king list kind of as a self-evident fact. And, uh, of course, there are 427 or so flood legends around the world, which we may look at that in just a little bit, because that was even evidenced by a guy who was writing against Christianity. So the two things we take from the Sumerian king list is, first of all, that there were long ages before the flood, and then, of course, there was a worldwide deluge of Noah. Now, one of the things that has been popularized in today is that the Noah's flood was somewhat localized, that it just happened. It was the Black Sea that overwent its banks or something else. But water seeks its own level. So... First of all, that's really scientifically impossible. Secondly, I mean, if that was the case, why didn't God just tell Noah, go to China? You know, why did he bring every animal there? Thirdly, over 30 times, it indicates in Scripture that the flood of Noah was worldwide. Also, Jesus says it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, is Jesus just coming for people in Israel or the ancient Near East, or is it a worldwide happening? Does he rule over the entire world during the millennium? There's a lot of intractable claims that occur with that type thinking. So the first archaeological uh, proof we'll look at, Sumerian king list. Secondly, we're going to look at evidence for Adam and Eve, and there is more evidence for Adam and Eve than you might think. First evidence is the temptation seal located in the British Museum. Uh, Masters has some great books on the, uh, the Bible and the British Museum. He actually pastors Charles Spurgeon's old church. And so the temptation seal, and you may have seen it, you can look it up, depicts a man and woman seated with a tree full of fruit between them. And then there's a serpent standing behind the woman, standing, a standing serpent. And this dates from the third millennium BC. A lot of different explanations have been proffered for this, but it looks suspiciously like what you find in the book of Genesis. Of course, we have to defend Genesis. Everything we believe begins in Genesis. The reason Jesus came to restore is to restore that which was lost 
in Genesis. Jesus is known as the last or the second Adam. How could he be that if there was no first Adam? If we all just are bacteria evolved, then was Jesus in the image of a bacteria or is he in the image of God? So again, a lot of intractable problems, uh, conundrums that destroy the very basis of theology. First, it seems like something so minor, but it ends up a thread pulling apart the entire coat. Adam and Eve seal is another proof of Adam and Eve. It's been dated to the 4th millennium BC. There is some argumentation over that. Folks like Ken Ham, they would say we really don't have anything pre-flood. It was the world that then was. It was destroyed. But anyhow, and dating methods are notoriously incorrect. Like they'll date uh, living seals, you know, an animal, and it'll say it's 800 years old or something that they know for a fact is a few decades old. It'll say it's 2,000 years old. So uh, I do many times a segment on that in science in the Bible. There's 21 different dating methods. And basically, the uh, the flood messed everything up, obviously, because there's contamination there. And then the world before the flood, it would have been different atmosphere and things such as that. Also, there's an assumption that things, so many of it's based on decay and half-life. Well, the assumption is, is that Everything started out 100%. We, we don't know that. Things could have been created half and half or 80% or something. So the Adam and Eve seal dated from 4th millennium BC. This shows a man and woman walking slumped over with a standing serpent walking behind them. Now think about that. you got a man and a woman walking. They're slumped over like he's holding their back. And a standing serpent walking behind them. Now, you might say, well, that's not definitive proof. That is correct. But the thing you have is, okay, it doesn't represent Adam and Eve. Let's take that hypothesis. What would it represent? And so it is the same thing with the temptation seal. And so there's not a limit of hypotheses of what it does represent, but it never fits anything best as it fits the Genesis narrative. And then, thirdly, proofs for Adam and Eve, we have Eridu in southern Mesopotamia. This is considered to be the world's oldest city. Damascus is the world's oldest continually inhabited city. It's also known as the Babylonian Eden. Now, a fascinating thing about Eridu, besides the massive library there, you had Adapa, who was the Babylonian Adam. He was the Babylonian first man was the first king of Eridu. Not just that. According to Babylonian myth and legend, he was deceived into not partaking of immortality. So we have these three, the temptation seal, the Adam and Eve seal, and Eridu with Adapa, showing that there is, we could call them proof or evidence for Adam and Adam and Eve in the area where God created them. Next, we'll come to the Epic of Gilgamesh. Epic of Gilgamesh, dating from 2100 BC. This fall, excuse me, this tells the biblical flood from a corrupted Babylonian perspective. 
Uh, if you've ever read or listened to the Epic of Gilgamesh, you can listen to it on YouTube. It's pretty fascinating. It's human nature. It reminds me so much of Homer's Iliad. You know, this is a tale of the anger of Apollo, <laughs> you know, because it's just human. It starts out human. It's just, it's debauched. But the fascinating thing about the Epic of Gilgamesh, who many uh, Sumeriologists would say was actually a person, you have somebody in this tale, the Epic, uh, named Utnapishtim. And he is the story's Noah. Again, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a worldwide flood is assumed. Now, Utnapishtim was commanded to build a boat, seal it with bitumen or pitch. Animals were to come on board. Now, the boat was in the shape of a cube, which is non-survivable in short order, according to simulations. You may have seen the simulations at the Naval Observatory in San Diego of the cube shape, but they would be dead within an hour, basically, because it just spins, whereas the Navy actually built ships built on the uh, dimensions of the Ark because it burrows into waves and swells, doesn't spin, is almost uncapsizable. So again, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you've got Utmatishtim on board an Ark with animals. A dove is released at the cessation of the flood as well as a raven. Utnapishtim exits the boat and does sacrifice. So again, the parallels are too uh, close to ignore. And what Gilgamesh is doing, he's going to get wisdom from Utnapishtim because he lived on the other side of the flood and had wisdom that Gilgamesh wanted and needed. Now, George Frazier, who wrote a uh, bad book called The Golden Bough, and he, he was against Christianity. But he recorded at least, and I've got this book, at least 427 flood legends around the world. If we were to examine each of these flood legends, so many of them, regardless of where they're at around the world, Apache flood legends here in North America, Mayan flood legends, so many of them are so close to the biblical example. And so there it's ethnologists and sociologists would say this is all referring back to one archetype that there was an event that happened that was scarred on the psyche of man. Some people try to say well it's it's babies being born with the water bursting in the birth canal and all the living in the uh, amniotic fluid. Well we know that's a type of the new birth God created that. But no, there was a, a tragic event, and you can show this from geology as well, and the fossilization. So it's not just sociological and ethnological, but it's it's also scientific, geological, and uh, paleontology, actually. But show a worldwide flood. And these 427 flood legends, it's much like the dragon legends that... Well, there had to be dragons because you've got everything from the UK, which is an island, to China. The dragon's kind of its motif, its national motif or mascot. And places all in between have dragon legends, the Ica stones in Peru. So there must have been these things, um, which that's all in science in the Bible. Next we come, so the Epic of Gilgamesh really shows 
the Bible is true, buttresses the claims of Scripture. The uh, two extra biblical creation accounts do as well. Now, studying, you can buy books that have the different creation myths from around the world. They're actually fascinating, you know, because you'd have civilized uh, civilizations that would believe that uh, we're Earth is a, a cube sitting on the back of a crystal turtle, like the Persians and these type of things. But two extra biblical creation accounts going back. Uh, four millennia basically show um, a kinship with scripture. The Enuma Elish which means went on high from Babylon and the Atrahasis epic which means exceedingly wise are two of the oldest known creation myths dating from the end of the third millennium BC. The Enuma Elish with circuitous pagan storytelling seeks to establish how Marduk became the chief the Babylonian pantheon. Yes, that Marduk, who, if you watch, is actually in Bohemia Grove, where the elite gather for a week in the summer in Northern California on the Russian River. <laughs> that Marduk. And then the Atrahasis epic, divided into three parts, shows how the various divinities of Babylon came to have their places. It also mentions the world is to be destroyed by a flood. However, it's not divine retribution for sin, but rather the whims and vindictiveness of a false god. The false deity couldn't sleep because mankind snored, and so he wanted to destroy the world. Now, what these do, these two extra-biblical creation accounts, show that there was, they knew there were deity. And they knew something happened. They didn't. Matter was not eternal. They were looking for something. But what it does is it also shows that the Genesis account is a plausible scientific account. It's something that comports with what we see. These other two accounts from 2000 BC or so are clearly mythological and impossible and full of superstition. Now, the reasoning in the secular world is, well, these come from 2000 B.C. The Mosaic account comes from 1490 B.C., thereabouts, 1491. And so these predate the Mosaic account. But no, Moses was getting this supernaturally from one who was there, one who was eternal, that was God. So actually the Mosaic account predates the Sumerian account. They're just talking about what has actually been found in stone. Be that as it may, the superiority of the Genesis account of creation above the Enuma Elish and the Atraesic epic show a superior morality and uh, thinking process and shows us it comes from the mind of God. Now, fifthly, the Tower of Babel. Um... Besides being the best hypothesis for the origin of languages, and that's something we many times cover in Science in the Bible 1 or 2, there's actually books written by uh, creation scientists on the Tower of Babel. 30 mammoth ziggurats have been found throughout the region of Mesopotamia. Some are over 200 feet high. To put that in perspective, the Great Pyramid of Giza, which it is illegal to climb but people do it, is 481 feet tall. These ziggurats date from the 3rd millennium B.C. 
In many cases, they're built with the same materials the Bible records the Tower of Babel being built with, leading to a hypothesis that these may be representations of the original Tower of Babel. Fascinatingly enough, seemingly confirming the dispersal of nations from Babylon, almost nearly identical structures have been found all over the globe. Now also, there's a story in Sumeria known as In Merker and the Lord of Arata. It's a Sumerian tale dating from around 2100 BC. It records a time when all mankind had a unified language. At the displeasure of a deity, all of mankind had their language confused and scattered. Now, again, these are, are paganized things, things that a couple centuries after the fact, people looked back and through the corrupted lens of sin, saw and did these things. Babel still refers to the inability to understand a language. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, all evidence points to, he also referred to this event as well, the building of the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of nations and languages, the confusion of languages. So language is fascinating. Ancient language was more complex than modern language, and that shouldn't be so in an evolutionary worldview, but it is. It is 100% true. And so scientists, linguists, have a very difficult time with that hypothesis. So the Babel hypothesis of language, I mean, language just appears, it burst on the scene 4,000 years or so ago, written in inscriptions and this type of thing. And, and there it is. They really don't know. and They don't know why it's devolving instead of evolving. Look at um, English, you know, even though the amount of words is increasing. Everyday language is severely decreasing. <laughs> and uh, 140 words, 280 words on Twitter, you know, OMG and IMHO and, and whatever else. But anyhow, uh, so the Tower of Babel has been shown to be true. And in many cases, I didn't even put this on here, that... Uh, Many think that the Tower of Babel itself has been found in the ancient Near East as well. Lastly, for this segment, and then we'll give you a quick break, depending on our TA and who is there, the Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, Ur of the Chaldees, one of the oldest cities that began to be excavated in this modern era, 1853, Fascinatingly enough, the average home was found to be a two-story villa containing 13 or 14 rooms, bigger than most houses today. The city was very modern, had a functioning sewer system. Now, what this tells us is ancient man was very smart. It wasn't cavemen. Job writes about cavemen, and they were people who rejected God. Golding also wrote about it in the famous book, The Lord of the Flies. When people reject God, they'll eventually end up in cavemen. C.S. Lewis saw this and that hideous strength, that this is where all this was going. America's heading to paganism right now because it's rejected God, professing themselves to be wise and become as fools. Okay, in Ur, uh, thousands of clay tablets have been discovered. The largest of the ziggurats was unearthed there. Many royal tombs have been unearthed, and the double-sided standard of Ur continues to be one of the premier archaeological finds of all time. 
It shows war on one side. It shows peace on the other side. We may go into it a little further. Abraham came from a very high culture and advanced civilization. But the city was wholly given to idolatry. As a matter of fact, the patron deity of Ur was Sin, S-I-N, the moon god. It's depicted by a crescent moon. As a matter of fact, like in some of the reliefs of the area, they would show the moon god giving kingship. This actually goes back to the Sumerian king list as well. Then kingship came down from heaven. And so giving kingship to these deities. And lest you think that's strange, I mean, even such as the emperor of Japan claims to be divine. Pharaoh, of course, claimed to be divine. The Roman Empire was considered to be civilized, and they their emperors were considered to be divinized. And of course, it's going to have a final fulfillment in the Antichrist, in the Mark of the Beast. So the fact that the city of Ur was found really corroborates scripture and showing the high degree of civilization comports with what we find in the Bible. So we're going to continue on with, interestingly enough, Sodom and Gomorrah, how it's been found, and how all these things undergird and show to prove that the Bible is true. So God bless you. We're going to end this segment, start back in just a little bit. God bless you. Talk with you in just a bit.